This is Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where you can come and get lit. Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get set for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. How many of you out there have been watching or watched the television series Ted Lasso? If you haven't seen it yet, I strongly recommend it. Right about now, it offers us a kind of levity and hope and compassion I think we all need. And I love the figure of Ted Lasso, who, to my mind, offers us a template for the kind of masculinity that incorporates vulnerability, gentleness, intelligence, and strength. There's a particular moment in the series I adore when Ted Lasso turns to someone who's been, let's just say, difficult. And Lasso responds with a story that culminates in this assertion. Be curious, not judgmental. I loved that moment so much that two of my beloved friends bought me a mug with the slogan on it. I was reminded recently that sometimes... I might be more judgmental than curious when I was in this local pharmacy. I'd lost my favorite eyeshadow and was surveying what they had in the cosmetics department in order to replace it. As I was hunched over examining their products, I heard the voice of a man behind me asking me something. At first I assumed he was drunk because it sounded garbled and I was irritated at feeling cornered in that way. So I spun around and snarled that I hadn't understood what he'd said. He looked me directly in the eye and asked me again. And that's when I realized it. He wasn't drunk. He had a speech impediment. And honestly, I think he was just practicing with a perfect stranger how to ask for the time. I gazed directly back at him after responding, admiring his courage and vulnerability, feeling a little sheepish about my own assumptions. And when he thanked me, I told him, with real honesty, that it was my pleasure. And it really was. I wondered how many times we must confront such moments of judgment. And I began to consider the types of masculinity that are in circulation in Western culture or how we code masculinity in particular ways. How we expect men to perform masculinity in particular ways. The writer who immediately sprung to mind in view of this consideration was the magnificent writer of the Dene Nation, Richard Van Camp. Now, if you don't know Richard Van Camp's work, I'm going to urge you to become familiar with it as soon as this episode is over. Two of his books, The Lesser Blessed and The Moon of Letting Go, have been made into movies. And no surprise, he was the CBC Radio's writer-in-residence for their North by Northwest program, and a script and cultural consultant for CBC's North of 60 television show for four seasons. One of the aspects of his writing that I love most is how he delineates intimacy between his male characters. He works out the contradictions and challenges to intimacy, the ways in which it may be taken for granted through habituated ways of knowing, or even lost, especially between male characters. In an article, Van Camp actually noted that, quote, I like to write about men a lot. I have three brothers and I have two fathers and my best friends are men and they're beautiful men, gentlemen, and men who are fathers and brothers themselves. 
These are the men, Van Camp notes, who have been pivotal in his life. And so he devotes much of his writing to these kinds of figures, to the challenges inherent in being men, to performing masculinity, specifically indigenous men. What does it mean, he wonders, to be a good man? I particularly love his collection of short stories, The Moon of Letting Go, in which he examines different kinds of relationships and the means by which men interact and try to challenge existing and locate renewed forms of masculinity. The collection is divided into four sections, each of which has its own particular focus. Section one is healing, section two, medicine, section three, teaching, and section four, love. The first three stories in section one, healing, therefore, are about the process of healing, as they also make reference to elements of medicine, teaching, and love. As a side note, and in context of Van Camp's Dene background, we must remember that the stories are not necessarily written for those who are not part of the Dene nation, although we are being granted some access, we being settlers and others. Since we're not part of this community, therefore, part of the challenge of reading the stories will be the way that we may not apprehend all of the references. Readers won't have access to everything, nor should we. Our intimacy will be limited. At the same time, we will be offered privileged information, which will allow us to feel some degree of inclusion and privilege. One important moment in this collection is when a male protagonist is enjoined by others to engage in a moment of violence. As a scholar of Richard Van Camp's work, Dr. Sam McKegney notes that violence is inadequate as, quote, a liberatory instrument when the context of oppression is steeped in toxic masculinity. Rather than charting a pathway out, he adds, violence appears to lock the young men in, leading them to replicate the very behaviors that they purport to reject. I love Sam McKegney's work. I've included a link to his work in my show notes. The models of masculine behavior that are available to men are thus at times neither desirable nor appropriate, even as Van Camp, as McKegney notes, refuses straightforwardly to condemn such models. As McKegney also argues, Van Camp provides these nuances to such discussions, grappling with manhood and masculinity in ways that are celebratory and critical in the same stroke. So, Van Camp does explore existing codes of masculine heroism that we still recognize and uphold, offering both a tempered view of how and why violences between men unfold as they do, and offers new formulations of or alternatives to existing forms of masculinity. I'll work with one of my favorites, Show Me Yours, to exemplify what I mean. It's the opening story to the entire collection, and it's an amusing, clever, and moving piece that really captures the sophistication of Van Camp as a writer. The title, as you might suspect, is what children sometimes say to each other when they mean to challenge each other to, well, make each other vulnerable. The full phrase usually is, I'll show you mine if you show me yours. 
It's meant to issue a challenge, and it's an invitation at the same time to be vulnerable. And we, as readers, are invited into this paradigm. At the outset of the story, the narrator, also incidentally named Richard, speaks about how everyone now walks around the town with their baby pictures glued over pictures of saints around their necks with leather ties, and how the leather tie becomes an invitation to other members in the community to, quote, take your baby pick out and show it to them, and they marvel at how beautiful you were when you were new, and they do the same. And then we praise each other. Oh, you were such a beautiful baby. Look at the dreams in your eyes. Oh, you were chubby. Wah. It's important that the narrator observes that this is how it is done now, when it's clear that it wasn't always done that way. Indeed, Richard tells us, there was a time when everything just fell apart. And in response, he started this practice when he was in a bad place woke up and saw his grandfather's necklace that the priest had given him with a saint on it. A saint, the narrator adds, that he didn't even know. A signal to us as readers that the narrator's grandfather went through the traumas affiliated with the residential school system and that whatever the religious training affiliated with it, he himself is no longer connected to that institution nor has any sense of its importance or meaning to his life he's not connected to his community either. So, what does he do? He finds his baby picture, which was on the top of the fridge and covered with dust and lint, also symbolic, cleans it up and, quote, glued my face over what's his humps and tucked it in under my shirt and over my heart. The first gesture in the process of recovery is self-healing self-respect, and self-love. It is about honoring oneself, not some unknowable, anonymous saint with whom Richard has no connection. A couple of days later, he finds himself being rolled by Frankie and Henry, who go through his pockets, and they find the necklace. It brings the two of them to a full halt. Indeed, the sheer vulnerability of the moment leaves them entirely confused rather than angry, and it certainly stops the violence of the encounter. Not only do they let him go, they toss back his money and tell him to go home, Richard, because you're not a man anymore. A suggestion that they believe that he once was. But he has changed, and they don't know how to process that change. Richard's response, I'm trying to be a man, suggests first, that whatever he was doing before, he is now trying to figure out what it means to be a good man, to redefine it in terms that challenge what Frankie and Henry believe. And from Richard's point of view, it means to some extent being vulnerable. The effect is immediate. Within two days, Frank and Henry return to show him theirs. That is, to present their own necklaces with their own baby pictures pasted over the images of saints. They do more than that. They apologize for their violent and aggressive behavior, and in so doing, they find a path toward forgiveness. Now, Richard might also murmur to us about the fact that they were once ugly babies, but, you know, that's also a way of producing intimacy with a reader in a way that's both amusing and non-vindictive. The practice extends when Richard's friend, Cynthia, 
takes a photo of Richard and her husband, Harvey, holding up their own necklaces and baby pictures, which end up in the local newspaper. And suddenly, the entire community is engaged with the practice. Suddenly, everyone is showing everyone else theirs. And there's this openness and laughter and intimacy that the community has not experienced in some time. But there's still more. Richard is then visited by Shauna, a woman he's loved for some time, but he's not been in a space that has allowed him to connect with her until that moment. The practice of being vulnerable thus also leads to a romantic relationship that serves as a prototype for relationships that are featured throughout the rest of the short story cycle. Richard the narrator and Richard Van Camp the author, in other words, show us theirs in the story. Show us how vulnerability takes courage, that vulnerability produces real intimacy and might be offered as a way of recalibrating our understanding of masculinity. This is the takeaway portion of the podcast. Since we're discussing the theme of masculinity, I thought I'd go back in time to another author by the name of Brian Fawcett, whose work Cambodia, a book for people who find television too slow, remains one of my favorites to this day. It's an unusual title for an unusual book that is ostensibly a collection of short stories, each of which are undergirded by what appears to be an extended footnote that runs along the bottom of the entirety of the collection. Fawcett is a poet, a writer of fiction, a cultural critic, who has published books titled Creatures of State in 1977, My Career with the Leafs and Other Stories in 1982, and Public Eye, an investigation into the disappearance of the world in 1990. His book, Cambodia, was published in 1986 and was part of a trilogy that includes Public Eye and another book called Gender Wars. Cambodia and Public Eye, in particular, explore Marshall McLuhan's notion of the global village, the perils of cultural homogenization, and the manipulation of memory by the media. I can't think of a book from that decade that was more prescient in terms of where we are right now. It won't seem that way at first when I tell you that the running script at the bottom of the page is largely about what happened in Cambodia between the years of 1975 and 1979. The Khmer Rouge, the left-wing Cambodian political party led by Pol Pot, who declared Year Zero, and instituted a radical program to create an idealized agrarian communist society. Pol Pot endeavored to crush social institutions, banks, uh, religious institutions, and so on. And intellectuals, or those standing in the way of this new order, were murdered, while many of those who escaped execution died from overwork and starvation. One perturbing means of creating consistency was when he had public signs whitewashed so that they all looked exactly the same. In other words, any sense of individuality or difference was being eradicated. Interestingly, although the title would suggest that Cambodia is central to the structure of this book, it's actually pushed to the bottom of the page. But make no mistake, Fawcett wants us to make a connection between what was happening in Cambodia 
and what's happening in North American culture, and to show us how the casual subtexts of our lives are also hidden from us, how we're controlled by them, and how we may even adhere to them without question. What he wants us to understand is that if the Khmer Rouge came to power through revolution, corporations are coming to power through a much more insidious means. I'll add briefly that, in one story in this collection, Universal Chicken, the narrator tracks a thought process of a young man driving across Canada, and he examines his apathy, indifference, almost immobilization. It's written in the second person, though, and that's an important technique because he wants all of us to take on and tackle our own apathy, our own indifference. That apathy is being informed by the commercial garbage produced by corporations that are, as Fawcett elsewhere argues, as single-minded as reptiles, or that lull us like prey into indifference. In this particular story, however, our narrator arrives at a nameless restaurant. He tries to make use of the bathroom facilities, which are already occupied by another man, So there they are, these two men, both trying to urinate at different stalls in the bathroom of a restaurant diner, where, incidentally, you can buy quote-unquote universal chicken, and which reminds us that we're all becoming such universal chicken. Consumers processed by corporations, making us into these homogeneous units, completely stripped of individuality. Their struggle the most basic of bodily functions, is only overcome when our narrator develops a moment of vulnerability and awkward kind of intimacy between the two male characters, which reminds them of their humanity and reminds me of Richard Van Camp's work. You'll have to pick up the book to find out what happens after that. Even if you don't agree with all that's being advocated in the book, it's important to consider whether or not you do agree, because as Fawcett might suggest, it demonstrates your mind is working, demonstrates that you're exercising the privilege of being fully human. He is thus asking the reader to take full responsibility, challenging our sense of apathy and passivity, and insisting that we all, each and every one of us, reflect and exercise our moral conscience. Well, that's it for this episode of Getting Lit with Linda. Please don't forget to rate us and follow us on whatever platform you use to listen to these episodes. And as always, thank you for joining me, my dear listeners. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to see covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.